Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. This uh, trip to to Arizona. I am Basem Eid. I am a Palestinian. I born in the old city of Jerusalem, which we used to call it in that time the Jewish Quarter. And uh, I developed at the Jewish Quarter for around seven years. And uh, in June 1966, which means exactly one year before the 67 war, the Jordanian government in that time decided to remove 500 Palestinian families from the Jewish quarter to a place which is we call it today Shafat refugee camp in the north of Jerusalem and it is exact location is between the French Hill and the Bisgad Ze'ev in Jerusalem. Why the Jordanian decided exactly one year before the 67 war to remove 500 families to a refugee camp, I was unable to get any explanation, neither from a Palestinian nor from the Jordanian, even not from the Jewish people. And this is how I developed in Shafat refugee camp for 33 years. Still, I have six brothers who are living there. And only in 1999, I succeed to get out of the camp to buy, you know, an apartment outside the camp. And I'm living, I used to live not far away from the refugee camp till 2004, where I moved afterwards to Jericho. As I said, as uh, uh, Rabbi Shwoli mentioned, I am a human rights activist. I started my human rights career under the Israeli organization called B'Tselem. And I worked as the main researcher for B'Tselem for seven and a half years searching violations committed by the Israeli army against the Palestinians in the West Bank and in the Gaza And I remember when the Oslo Agreement came out on the 13th September 93, when Yasser Arafat met with the former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and President Clinton in the White House. In that time, I used to sit, you know, at home and watching the TV. And uh, a friend of mine called me on that night and he asked me, where are you? I said, I am sitting at home in front of the TV, watching these two gentlemen, how they are going to shake their hands. Then my friend said, listen, Basim. Looks like that peace is coming and no violations of human rights will be committed and you must have to find a job for yourself. I thought a little bit about it and I said, I probably can be a very good tour guide because I know, you know, the Gaza Strip, I know the West Bank, I know each small holes, villages, uh, neighborhoods in each place. And they probably I can take, you know, some uh, groups over there, uh, tourists, to make uh, some, uh, some tourism to the Palestinians. But immediately I realized that we are going to receive a new 
Arab dictatorship to the region because the Palestinian leadership almost grown up under the dictatorship regime. In Syria, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Algeria, in Tunisia, in Libya, in Egypt, wherever. They never developed under any democratic regime. And I completely agreed in that time that the Palestinian Authority attitude is going to be the same like any other Arab leader attitude. And I remember when Yasser Arafat arrived to Gaza Strip on the 5th of July, 94. On the next day, the first Palestinian prisoner died in the Palestinian prison in Gaza Strip. On the next day of Arafat's arrival, the first Palestinian died in, the, in jail in Gaza. And that's, it probably was one of the main reasons why I decided to resign from Betzalem in that time and to create a Palestinian organization to continue dealing with the Palestinian Authority violations. As you might know, to create a human rights organization under the Arab regime, it looks like to commit a suicide. It wasn't so easy. I was personally arrested by Arafat and I was kept in jail only for 24 or 25 hours because the only one who succeeded to release me in that time was the former U.S. Secretary Warren Christopher under Bill Clinton administration. And that gave me a huge impunity from the Palestinian Authority. So since five years ago, I became much more well known as a political analyst on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and on the internal Palestinian politics and conflicts. You know, probably with Israel, we have one conflict, but among ourselves, we have several different conflicts here. And I want to use this opportunity uh, probably to start my speech from Gaza, because Gaza today is not only the obstacle to Israel. Gaza today also became an obstacle to the Egyptian government, to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank also. So if we will look today to inside the Gaza Strip, we will find that there are four different players playing inside the Gaza Strip. The first player is the Egyptian government. The second player is the Palestinian Authority of the West Bank. The third player, of course, the Hamas, but the fourth player is Israel. Now, what is the difference between these four different players? The first two players, which is the Palestinian Authority and the Egyptian government, are very interesting in the destruction of the Gaza Strip, in destroying the Gaza Strip. Why? Because the Egyptian government believes that the Hamas organization is a terrorist organization. The Egyptian government believes that while more and more Egypt will impose pressure on the Gaza Strip, that's probably the only way out to get rid from the Hamas organization. What is the interest of the Palestinian Authority? The interest of the Palestinian Authority that while Egypt imposing more and more pressure on Gaza, that's probably will pave the way to the Palestinian Authority to return back to Gaza and to recontrol Gaza like they used to do till 2007. Now, what about the other two players, which is the Hamas and Israel? I believe that these two players are much more interesting in the reconstruction of the Gaza Strip. But if Israel and the Hamas almost agreed on the reconstruction of Gaza, what is the conflict between both of them? The conflict is that the Hamas said that the priority for the reconstruction of Gaza should have to go to our own tunnels and to our military capability. While Israel said, no way. The priority for the reconstruction of Gaza should have to go to the houses and to the other civil facilities which has been destroyed during the summer war in 2014. And this is unfortunately how the whole process of the reconstruction of Gaza almost delayed 
for around two and a half years. Friends, if we will look today to the Rafah passage, which is dividing Gaza from, from Egypt. It, during the last year, 2016, the Rafah passage was open only for 20 days. During the whole year, how many Palestinians succeed to cross it from Gaza to Egypt? 20,000 Palestinians only. If we will move to 2011, how many Palestinians succeed to cross the Rafah passage from Gaza to Egypt? 460,000. Half million people. And the number dropped from half million to 20,000. And that's showing the real pressure that Egypt trying to impose right now on the Gaza state. If we will go today to the Rafah passage from the Gazan side, we will find not less than 30,000 people are waiting for the passage to be open. And unfortunately, no one, no media around the world is interested to report about those 30,000 Palestinians who are waiting for the Rafah passage to be open to join their hospitals, their work, their universities. Now, if we move to the West Bank a little bit, I am a person who believes that if Mr. Netanyahu tomorrow will meet with President Abbas, probably the first question that Netanyahu is going to ask Abbas, whom you are representing, Mr. President, Gaza Strip or the West Bank or Palestinians diaspora. In my opinion, President Abbas these days only representing his two sons and his wife. I think that the majority of the Palestinians almost lost the trust in their own leadership. If you will come today to any ordinary Palestinian and asking him what are the most three priorities that you are seeking, he will say a job to survive, to secure the education system and the health system for my children. Nobody is talking about settlements. Nobody is talking about the war. Nobody is talking about the foundation of the Palestinian state, which means, in my opinion, that the majority of the Palestinians these days are people who are seeking dignity rather than identity. And this is what I used to teach my Palestinian colleagues in the refugee camps all the time, that homeland is not the place where you're born. Homeland is the place where you can find dignity, justice, and freedoms. Any country around the world who can guarantee me these three issues, I have no problem to be considered as their citizens. And when we are talking about dignity, we are talking about a better economic situation to the Palestinians. Unfortunately, since the Oslo Agreement until today, almost hundreds of billions of dollars has been spent on the Oslo Accord and that actors of Oslo. But those hundreds of billions of dollars were unable to create one job in the West Bank, neither in the Gaza Strip. And the question is, where is the money? And this is one of the major problems, I think, for the international community, that they are still keeping a blind eyes on the Palestinian economy and trying to focus more and more on the Palestinian politics. And that's sometimes making me laughing when some parliamentarians, especially from Europe, sometimes say that if Israel is not going to resume the, the peace negotiations with the Palestinians, we are going to recognize the Palestinian state. And the question is, which Palestinian state you are going to recognize? A state which is in a lack of institutions, a state which is in a lack of a, a economic sources. A state which is around 54% of its populations are still living in a refugee camp. This is not the state that I am dreaming for. And this is not the state that the Palestinians are really expecting. I think that the state should have to be built before it's recognized. And that's exactly what Europe should have to start focusing on today. Because sometimes it's, it's unbelievable when people start talking about two-state solution. What does it mean, two-state solution? Where is the other state? Where is the other state? 
Let's agree that the two-state solution is the solution, but what is the other state? I think that the two-state solution it probably need another 20 years in turn to start, first of all, to build the Palestinian state. And after the Palestinian state will be built, then we will start talking about solutions. I didn't see right now that the Palestinians are really ripe enough for the state. And I think that the Gaza disengagement is one of the, the, the major proofs for that. Because I remember when Ariel Sharon declared on his plan to disengage from Gaza, several Palestinian leaders, including the Hamas, start running from one TV channel to another TV channel by saying that if Israel will disengage from Gaza, we are going to make from Gaza Singapore. I never been in Singapore, but I'm wondering if Singapore has the similar conditions of Gaza. Even the Hamas said in that time that if Israel will disengage from Gaza, we the Hamas going to transfer our resistance to the West Bank, not from Gaza. So who's shooting the rockets from Gaza? I think that the Israeli disengagement from Gaza can be considered as one of the most failure things to the Palestinians. Because we were unable to manage Gaza. We were unable to develop Gaza. We are unable to build the infrastructure of the Gaza State. When I am calling some Gazan friends these days, you know what people asking me? How the Israelis looks like? We miss them because these people used to have a lot of jobs in the settlements around of Gaza. A lot of money these people almost did inside the settlements. And now they stuck nowhere. They have no electricity today. Why they don't have electricity? It's very simple reason. For a very simple reason. They don't have electricity because the Hamas leadership is using electricity every month in 8 million shekels and they are paying zero shekel. So the people who should have to pay for the electricity of the Hamas leaders. And this is why the Gaza has a lack of electricity. Not because the people are not paying, because the Hamas leaders are not paying their own electricity. Friends, if we will look to the Middle East map today and how the Islamic terror increasing, we will find that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is probably the most safe place in the Middle East today. As an Arab, as a Muslim, I don't want to be in Libya, I don't want to be in Syria, I don't want to be in Iran. It's much safer for myself and for my children to continue living under the Israeli-Palestinian. Unfortunately, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today is not the priority of the international community, including the American administration, by the way, with my respect to President Trump. I don't believe neither President Trump nor the coming president will be able to solve the Israeli-Palestinian. Why? For one reason. Because the only one who can solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is only the Palestinians and the Israelis. And nobody from outside can force any kind of solution on the both sides. Unfortunately, the both sides are not ripe enough right now for peace. I am a person who believes that before peace, we need to start building the bridges of confidence here. There was, a, during the last 17 years since the second Intifada started, there was a huge and deep gap of hatred between the both sides. And while you have such a huge, deep gap of hatred, I don't think that we are right for peace. The question is how we can be able to build bridges of confidence in terms to avoid falling in a such deep gap of hatred. This is the question. And that's exactly what the other leaders around the world, including President Trump, should have to start thinking about. I think that the world can contribute a lot for building bridges of confidence, but they couldn't contribute anything 
towards peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And that's exactly the major problem today of the Israelis and the Palestinians. That looks like that the conflict almost out of the hands of the Israelis and the Palestinians. And there are so many fingers, unfortunately, playing in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And unfortunately, there are some countries today who became a part of the conflict rather than a part of the solution. This is the problem of the Israeli-Palestinians. It's not only the Israelis and the Palestinians that also a part of the international community today became a problem for the conflict. I don't think that the Israelis or the Palestinians are really expecting from the new American administration any change towards the future. Everybody said that President Trump is working really so hard to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. If I will meet with him, I will ask him to have a rest. He <laughs> shouldn't have to work hard. We work more harder than him. In the past 50 years, we achieved nothing. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I think that leaders around the world should have to start evaluating their own foreign policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And probably by evaluating the foreign policy, that will contribute to the peace much more than the current policy that they are using. So I hope that I didn't provoke any of you here. But when we talk about peace, I think that we should have to be a little bit not in hurry. And I'm a person who believes that it probably in 20 years it might be possible. Because I used to tell the Palestinians all the time that with the current Palestinian leadership, peace will never be achieved. And if we will make, wait at least for one generation, maybe a charismatic, a serious, a, a courageous Palestinian leader will be born and he will be able to bring peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I will stop probably right now and giving you some time to make things a little bit clear. Thank you very much. The table is totally open uh, for questions, challenges, support, or anything. Ladies first. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. You mentioned cha change, concrete changes that other people can can do, other countries can do. What would some of those changes be that would enable this thing to get off the ground, even if it will take 20 years? See, 20 years, we are a very patient people, <laughs> the Israelis and the Palestinians, by the way. So 20 years is not so long time. We are almost living together 50 years. 50 years. Nobody can imagine. Nobody can imagine. Sometimes I used to ask Palestinians, imagine that you will wake up tomorrow morning and you will find no Israeli in the West Bank. What will happen? Then people said, oh my gosh, I hope not. <coughs> people said, hope not. Because people are much more worried about their economy and their future. And if the Israelis will disengage tomorrow morning from the West Bank, that will be horrible. Who can provide jobs? So what I used to say, that the economic issue is one of the most important issues. And my question is what the international community can contribute towards the economy. What do you think? Leave the politics. I am a person who believes <coughs> that we need a kind of a regional economic cooperation. 
not only between the Israelis and the Palestinians, not only between the Americans and the Palestinians. When I talk about regional economic cooperation, I want to see an economic zones built in Gaza and in the West Bank. In Gaza, with cooperation with Israel, Palestinians, and the Egyptians. In the West Bank, with cooperation with the Palestinians, the Israelis, and the Jordanians. Because I think that the Jordanians needed not less than the Palestinians. And the Egyptian today also needed not less than the Palestinians. This is one of the most important issues, I believe, that the economic countries today, like Japan as an example, like China as an example, like the United States as a, like Germany, should have to start looking into it. Because I'm a person who believes that peace will come by itself, by itself. Nobody can bring peace. Peace, when the road is paved for it, it will pass. And I'm a person who believes that economy is probably the only way who can pave the way towards peace. And this is, I think, that this is one of the major important things. And I think that today, Israel probably the only country who is aware about the Palestinian economy. Because every month or two months, the Israeli government decided to issue a new working permits to the Palestinians. Another 10,000, another 20,000, another 30,000. Why? Because the Israeli government believes that while Israel increasing the Palestinian economy, that's it probably we decrease the Palestinian violence. This is what the Israelis believe. Thank you. Please. First a statement, then a question. I've been to Singapore and I've been to Gaza. You're right. There is no conspiracy. I'm going to. It seems to me that before the Israelis and the Palestinians can solve their issue, that the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza need to solve their issues first. And if that's if my premise is correct, how do you propose that they start that process? I, first of all, I am a very pessimistic person towards any kind of reconciliation or unity among the Palestinians. And I am a person who used to say all the time that looks like to me that the two-state solution is not really so accepted by the Palestinian leaders. The most popular solution probably accepted by the Palestinian leaders is a three-state solution for two people. Because the Hamas is fighting for their own Islamic emirate in the Gaza Strip. Abbas is fighting for his own empire in the West Bank and the state of Israel. This is how we are living, by the way, since the Hamas took over the Gaza in 2007, almost 10 years. <coughs> Looks like that everybody is so satisfied with his own. Look, 10 years. We are living under three-state solution, by the way. People probably didn't realize or recognize that, but you can feel it. The laws in Gaza, it's completely different than in the West Bank. It's a completely different country. And I think that this is one of the major problems of the Palestinians. I used to say that if the Palestinians will continue being divided, no chance for peace. No chance for peace. I am saying it to the Palestinians rather than to anybody else around them. But looks like to me that there is a huge fight right now between politics and ideology. Because the Fatah in the West Bank dealing with politics, but the Hamas in the Gaza Strip dealing with ideology. And it's very difficult to bring both of them 
together. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Because the ideology of Hamas is to trash the Jewish people and the state of Israel. That's it. These are the principles of the ideology of the Hamas. And the Hamas knows very well that if they will withdraw from such kind of principles, Iran will never support them financially. Qatar will never support them financially. Turkey will never support them financially. So sometimes I used to see that the whole terror which is surrounded the world is money. Is who is paying more? Who is paying more? This is how I am looking to the terror today. It's terror for money, for financial reasons, rather than for anything else. I don't believe in the ideology of Hamas. But Hamas want to keep such kind of ideology because this ideology will bring a huge income for them, financially and power. This is the major problem of the Palestinians today. This is the major problem of the Palestinians. Now, uh, now if we will take the history a little bit, from 1948 until 1967, Gaza used to be under the Egyptian rule. West Bank used to be under the Jordanian rule. Neither the Jordanians nor the Egyptians ever try to link between the West Bank and Gaza. I remember when I was in the school at the Jewish quarter, they never taught us a word about Gaza. Never. When the issue of Gaza exploded after the 67. So I used to say to the Palestinians that the only one who link between Gaza and the West Bank is the Israeli occupation. Neither the Jordanians nor the Egyptians. But looks like that we the Palestinians almost against is such kind of linkage. While today, some of the Fatah people still accusing Israel on the divided society. Still accusing Israel. Okay, let's say Israel divided the Palestinians. What you, the Palestinians, can do to be united? Nothing. Nothing. So it is, it is one of the biggest problems, I, I believe in that. But that's, forget, at least I can guarantee you that in the coming 10 years, in the coming 10 years, no unity will be created between the Palestinians or between the West Bank and the Gaza State. Please. You alluded to the hatred as being an obstacle to peace, the hatred between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Uh, what's the solution? They're still teaching, they're still exporting that hatred, even to the United States. The college campuses have uh, incidents of uh, uh, Palestinians uh, protesting Israelis, <coughs> Jewish students. Uh, Saudi Arabia exports to their schools there, uh, and even in the United States, hatred, uh, hatred principles. Is there, a, is there an answer to this? I can't talk much more about the Palestinians rather than the Saudis. I wish I can change something in Saudi but of course I couldn't. When it comes towards the Palestinian Authority, I am a person who became very critical towards the Palestinian curriculum and the education system. I think that one of the major obstacles here is the so-called UNRWA, the UN Works and Relief Agency. You know, in the Gaza Strip today, you have around 65% of the population are living in refugee camps. 
in the West Bank, you have around 54% of the populations living in a refugee camp. And UNRWA is the one who is ruling these refugee camps. The UNRWA curriculum is one of the most horrible ones. I check it very well personally. I interviewed a Palestinian students at UNRWA school. It's horrible. I think that UNRWA today became a part of the conflict rather than a part of the solution. But who is keeping UNRWA surviving? The Europeans and the Americans. The yearly budget of UNRWA today is 1.6 billion dollars a year. What is the contribution of the American administration yearly to UNRWA? 400 million. Why the American administration is not coming to UNRWA by saying, listen, your curriculum is horrible. If you are not going to change it, we are not going to contribute any money. Can you do that? At least I am not contributing one dollar to UNRWA. But I think some of your taxes is going to UNRWA. And I was several times at the Capitol Hill talking about this issue. But no one representative right now tried to interfere with this issue. What? What? So it is also another international crisis rather than it is an Israeli-Palestinian crisis. Because UNRWA is outsider. Is neither a Palestinian nor an Israeli UNRWA. It's outside. So the money which is coming out to UNRWA is the one who is playing the role of hatred and incitement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Is that what they're espousing? I mean, what are they espousing? UNRWA. Yeah. The curriculum. What, yeah. What in the curriculum are they I think, so I think, first of all, in the UNRWA curriculum, Israel is not exist in the geography. Yeah. 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 This is one example. Yeah. And then beside that, you have a lot of lessons, how to fight the occupation, how to liberate your, your people, how to liberate your land, how to kick the Jews out of the, your own land, and such kind of stories. And it is very, it is very clear yeah, to the American administration. I met with some representatives here. I met with the staff of the American embassy in Tel Aviv, and they talk about this issue. But I didn't see that the Americans are really interested to do it. Just there. Yeah. Please. You didn't outright say it, but I sense a lack of confidence in both Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Abbas in being that person that can bridge that confidence. Is there anyone that you identify on either side as an upcoming leader in Israeli or Palestinian <coughs> politics that you say that person, you know, could be that, could bridge the confidence if elected? See, it probably in a way or another, Netanyahu will be replaced by somebody because we know that every two, three, four years there are elections in Israel. But if you will ask me who is the alternative to Abbas, I will tell you Abbas. And this is probably one of the major problems of the Palestinians is the lack of leadership. We don't have leadership. Abbas is not allowing even the Fatah young generation to take part in his own politics. And I didn't see right now that there is any alternative Palestinian leader. As you can see, we elected Abbas in 2005, and he already ruling us for 12 years right now, and he is ready to rule us for, for, uh, 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 for longer. 
And this is also another question when Abbas met with Mr. Trump at the beginning of this month. I'm wondering if Mr. Trump asked Abbas when he is planning to run elections. I am quite sure that he never mentioned that. Do you think he could be the next Mubarak who's run out by his people? Of course, of course, I am quite sure. He is already, already Mubarak. With the corruption of himself and his two sons, I think that he is even much bigger than Mubarak. This is one of the major problems. The question is when the elections will take place. Is there an opposition? No. Under Abbas, of course not. Would show me one opposition under the Arab regime. The opposition, opposition of the Saudis, they are sitting in Washington. The opposition of the Suris, they are sitting in Turkey. The opposition of Jordan, they are sitting in the UK. Which Arab country has opposition? Show me. No one. And Abbas is a similar regime. Please. Yep. You, you speak about the solution being economic, and I, I fully agree with that. When people have jobs and people have a decent life, they're, they, they're not interested in starting wars, they're not interested in fighting with other people. But the political parts of it prevent the economics from, from moving forward. You know, you, you try to want to separate the politics from the economics. What, what, could, what needs to be done politically? Is there anything that can be done to push the political to support the economic? I, I can say that I disagree with you that politics and economy should have to go together. No, it shouldn't have. I'll give you a wonderful example. In the north of Ramallah, <coughs> the Israelis decided to contribute a huge piece of land to the Palestinians to build a new Palestinian city. City. Israel decided to contribute the piece of land, which is Area C, to the Palestinians. And some businessmen interfered. I believe with the Israeli experience, if you will look to that city today, it's called Rawabi. You can search it on the internet. It's called Rawabi. If you will look to that city, it's not exist in any place around the U.S. It's an unbelievable place. And that city has been built in cooperation between Israelis and Palestinians, by the way. The Palestinians invest the money and the Israelis built it. But beside that the Israelis built it, we receive around over than 25,000 jobs for Palestinian workers. And still the work is going on. I think that that's a lovely example. How do we encourage that to continue? How exactly. Do we that to be, to be exactly. You should have to come and to sit with the ordinary people, not with the leaders. Leave the leaders aside. Leave the leaders aside. Now, one of the problems that sometimes you couldn't approach those businessmen without passing nearby the leaders. This is one of the problems. But I think a country like the United States can put out a huge project how to increase the Palestinian economy without giving any attention to Abbas. If you want to interfere Abbas, we are going to cut the financial support to you. Keep away. This is what the leaders can do it. And I think that Rawabi, if you will search it, it is something unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it was built in the economic cooperation between Palestinians and Israelis. Without any politics. If you will go there, you will never hear one word of politics. This is a wonderful project. 
and this is can be developed without to be based on any kind of politics. But still, we need countries to be involved in that, not only individuals. We need countries, we need strong, serious leaders to come and to say, listen, I want to improve the economy of the Palestinians without giving any attention or any shit to their own leaders. Because the major problem of the Palestinians, in my opinion, is their own leaders <coughs> rather than it is the occupation. Please. What was the Gaza Strip like before 1967, when Egypt ruled? <coughs> I never been there before 67. I think Gaza looks like a huge refugee camp in that time, before the, till the 67. And anybody need to leave from Gaza to outside Gaza need the authority, the, uh, the, the, the permits from the Egyptian uh, government in that time. It looks like any other refugee camp today in Lebanon or any other refugee camp in Syria. So it's just a continuation now. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And this is unfortunately what is going on today. That it's, if, if you will ask today any, any ordinary Gaza, which country really imposing the blockade on the Gaza Strip? You will say Egypt, not Israel. Because Israel is the only one who is supplying the food, the medicine, the electricity, and the water. Israel, not Saudi Arabia, not Qatar, not Turkey, yeah, Israel. And people has the feeling today that they are really under a huge pressure from the Egyptian government. So people couldn't move out at all without the permission of the Egyptians. If the Egyptians will not open the Rafah passage, nobody can get out at all. And when Israel was ruling after 67? No, 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 it was so open, yeah. I remember, you know, when when the Gazan people used to drive their cars from Rafah to Tel Aviv and to stay on the beaches for 10 days without anybody asking them what you are doing here. I think that the people almost missed those days. Sure. Yeah. Please. Uh, you said you were in a refugee camp for 33 years. 1948, the refugees dispersed, and they settled in these camps. And a refugee camp is supposed to be a temporary place. But politically, though, they maintained these camps. Why didn't the people, why don't they object? Why don't they leave? Why don't they revolt? Why don't they do something? To leave, to leave people, people couldn't leave. Where to go? I succeed to leave because I bought an apartment. Imagine that I don't have money to buy an apartment where I can live. Where? I will stay on the other side. I think that this is the main job of the international community, who are paying the $1.6 billion a year to UNRWA. Why you are paying that money? For what you are paying that money? Why you are not ordering UNRWA that every five years we have to build a new neighborhood and to remove those refugees to that new neighborhood. You know, sometimes people ask me, why UNRWA is not solving the issue of the refugees? I said, for one reason. Because if UNRWA will solve the issue of the refugees, then the 30,000 employees of UNRWA will become refugees and jobless. That's like the March of Dawn. This is what You know from the, the 1.6 billion dollars a year, around 65% is going for salaries. It's going for salaries. You know the spokesperson of UNRWA in the West Bank and in Gaza is living on the beach in Tel Aviv, 
is not living in a refugee camp. His salary is $25,000 a month. Beside the car, beside the assistance, beside the office, beside the rent of the villa. You want to ask me? Why aren't the Arab countries doing something to help the refugees and the people in America? First of all, let the Arabs help their own people. Arabs are killing their own people. You want Bashar Assad to help the Palestinians? No. no. Yeah, come on. <laughs> you want the Saudis to help the Palestinians who is butchering the Yemenis people every day? Leave the Arabs. The Arabs are not exist anymore. They are not exist. Mean the good Arabs. Each, 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 each Arab country these days almost is stuck in its own mind. So forget. They didn't, they didn't help us while they were living under prosperity. You want them to help us while they are living under, under tragedies? Great. Okay. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.